Well, brothers and sisters, it is a joy to gather with you this morning around the word of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, we get the joy of beginning a, a new series in the book of Colossians. This will be a series that we do for a couple weeks here at the end of May, and, and we'll come back to uh, in the fall. So if you have a Bible, please open to the book of Colossians. It's in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to use one of those uh, pew Bibles there in the pew in front of you. You can find Colossians on page 983 of that Bible. This morning, we will consider the first eight verses of the book of Colossians. We're calling this series, Christ Above All. Our hope over the course of our study of this short letter is that we will come to a higher view and understanding of Jesus Christ. Paul writes this letter to a church in Colossae that was being pressured by false teachers and the, the culture around them. They were being pressured with worldly philosophies that would add to the gospel and make less of who Jesus is. But the Apostle Paul wants the Colossians to know the true Jesus that he is above all worldly philosophies. There is no one who compares to this Jesus. And so there's nothing better for us as a body to consider than the person and work of Jesus Christ. May we come to believe and see with greater confidence over the, the course of this study that Jesus is the supreme and sufficient for all things. So we will read from Colossians 1, verses 1 through 8. But before we do that, let me pray. Lead us in a prayer to ask God for his help in the reading and the proclaiming of his word. Let's pray. Father, our prayer this morning is that we would be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Father, fill us with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. May we come to be more confident, more comforted in your word this morning. Father, may we leave this morning with the assurance that your word is all that we need. The word of truth of who Jesus is. May we come to Jesus this morning and hear from him in his word we pray. Amen. Beginning in verse 1 of Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth. The gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Well, friends, an autograph can be worth a lot of money. 
Just to give you some reference, I did just a little bit of research this week. I, I looked up a few things. One, a Babe Ruth signed a baseball. Sold for over $388,000. A contract signed by the great guitarist, Jimi Hendrix. Sold for about $200,000. But the most expensive autograph that has ever been sold is an autograph of George Washington. It's his signed copy of the Acts of Congress, which, brace yourselves, sold for a whopping $9.8 million. It's a lot of money. We're dealing with major things, purchases that will change a life in some senses. Money that is unfathomable to me and probably to you. So autograph is worth a lot of money. But not every autograph you see is authentic. In fact, fake, uh, fake autographs are a multi-million, if not billion-dollar business. In fact, I was looking up on the FBI's, uh, an interview with an FBI, uh, in, um, officer, FBI officer, agent, there's the word I was looking for, an FBI agent, and he said that, that they were searching after a, a fake autograph company that made $100 million a year off of fake autographs. So the question becomes, how do you know an autograph is real? We're dealing with major money. How do we know, how can we have assurance that, that what we're going to be paying lots and lots of money for is authentic? Well, oftentimes they'll, they'll bring in someone who's a, a professional authenticator. Someone who will attempt to decipher whether this or that signature is real. That, that authenticator will, will look at the ink and the paper used. Does it match the time that this person was alive? They'll look at the structure of the signature, right? How many times does the pen come off the page? How many, what's the loop size look like? They'll consider it side by side with other already confirmed signatures. But no matter how much they work, how, no matter how much time they give, it, it really is hard to know whether every autograph you see is authentic. It's hard to have assurance. Well, it can be hard to have assurance when it comes to something far more valuable than even a $9.8 million autograph. It can be hard to have assurance when we consider eternal life, the salvation that Jesus offers. I wonder if you're here and have struggled to know if your salvation is real. How can one know? Well, in our passage this morning, in these first eight verses of this letter to the Colossians, Paul wants the Colossian church to know, to, to have assurance. He wants to help them answer the question, how do we know that this gospel that we have received is the real, authentic gospel? See, they needed to be reassured because they were under attack. There were pressures from the world and those within the church that were, that were giving them something additional to the gospel that they had initially heard. And so the Apostle Paul encourages the church that the gospel they first heard was the, the true gospel. They could rest assured in that gospel. And so that's our big idea this morning. Our one-sentence summary of the passage is rest assured in the true gospel as it's bearing gospel fruit among you and around the world. What are we to take this morning? Well, I hope you come away resting assuredly in the true gospel 
as it bears fruit among you and around the world. The Apostle Paul wants the Colossians to rest confidently in the true gospel. The gospel that they have received. He's going to point out that the gospel is working powerfully in their lives and in, in, in the lives of those around the world. And it is the same gospel that's working now that Epaphras first shared with them. It is the only message that can pass the test of authenticity. And so Paul, in, in what is a, a, a very traditional greeting and gratitude for any Greek letter, is actually not just being wrote. No, he's assuring the Colossians, you have the true gospel. And so to this morning, brothers and sisters, I hope you will rest assured in the true gospel as it's bearing gospel fruit among you and around the world. Well, how does Paul do this? How does Paul reassure these Colossian Christians? Well, I think he gives us five categories, five categories to look for as we seek to authenticate the gospel, to to understand and authenticate what we have heard is the, the true, powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. And so those five categories will be our our points this morning. First, gospel people in verses 1 and 2. Paul will affirm that he and Timothy are gospel people and he will call the Colossians gospel people. Then we'll see gospel fruit in in verses 3 through the beginning of 5. We'll see gospel truth in the second half of verse 5. We'll see gospel power, that the the gospel that they have heard is the gospel that powerfully works in them and among the world. And we'll see gospel messenger. They can trust the messenger who has brought them the gospel, and therefore they can trust the message that he brings. So gospel people, gospel fruit, gospel truth, gospel power, gospel messenger. Let's begin first with this, the, the first thing we look for, which is gospel people. The letter begins, as all of Paul's letters do, with an identification of who is sending the letter. Look with me back at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. This letter is from Paul, who is an apostle of Christ Jesus, he says, by, by God's very will. Some of you may be familiar with Paul the apostle. He's actually the only apostle who, who did not travel with Jesus, or he, he became an apostle far later than, than all the other apostles. In fact, Paul's history, before he became an apostle, was quite an evil one. He was a major persecutor of the church. He stands affirming the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7 and 8. But it was not God's will that Paul would remain a persecutor. Everything in Paul's story makes it abundantly clear that this was God's will to save him, not his own. If it was left up to Paul, Paul would have gone on to persecute and kill and arrest many more Christians. But that was not God's will. In fact, we see the resurrected and ascended Savior Jesus speak to Paul, calling him out of the darkness and bringing him into his beloved kingdom. And then the Lord Jesus sending him out to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. That's in fact what it means to be an apostle. It is one directly commissioned by the resurrected Lord Jesus. And Paul, who was a Jew of Jews, he tells us, became God's appointed apostle to the Gentiles. 
giving the rest of his life, declaring the good news that he once prisoned and persecuted and killed people for, he now would be persecuted, imprisoned, and die for by the very will of God. So Paul's the the primary sender of this letter. He'll sign with his own hand at the end of chapter 4 to show that this was his letter, his authorship. But he's not the only letter. We see also there in verse 1, Timothy, our brother. Timothy was Paul's child in the faith. He was the disciple who was likely with Paul in his imprisonment. In fact, that's what we think Paul's writing from an imprisonment in Rome to the Colossians. And Timothy was there with him in the middle of this imprisonment. Timothy possibly was the scribe while Paul dictated, but whatever it was, there were two senders. And both of them are gospel people. They are people of Christ Jesus by the will of God. They are gospel people. But they are not the only gospel people we see. In fact, Paul and Timothy are writing to other gospel people. As we see in verse 2, the recipients are the the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Paul calls them saints, that is, holy ones. The NIV translation translates this word as God's holy people. The holy people who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Those whom God has set apart at the town of Colossae. Colossae was a declining town. And Colossae was was never a town Paul visited in his initial missionary journeys. In fact, Paul did not plant the church in Colossae. We find out that it was Epaphras who planted this church in just a a few verses, in verses 7 and 8. And yet here, Paul, writing to a church he does not know, people whom he has never met, is still moved in love to assure them that they are gospel people set apart by God in Christ. And he greets them with gospel words. You see there at the end of verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father. They are set apart from God, they are set apart by God as those who know God's undeserved favor and the peace that surpasses understanding. So from the very beginning, Paul is assuring these Colossian Christians to know that they are gospel people. There might be others pressuring them to receive additional truths, to to add on to the message that they have heard, but Paul will say right away, no, you are true gospel people. What a wonderful example set for us in Paul's greeting. Friends, the assurance that you long for can be found right here amongst God's gospel people. That is in part what God has given the church for, to encourage one another, to be, as one pastor says, an assurance of salvation co-op. In fact, in our church membership class last week, we defined church membership this way. Church membership is a formalized commitment to a local church, and that church's formalized commitment to you along with an affirmation of your faith. What we're doing in church membership is saying, not only are we committing to you, but we're affirming that you are a gospel person. We've heard your testimony. We've heard what what God has done in your life. And we are saying, yes, that, that is the work of God's gospel. While church membership doesn't guarantee that you are a Christian, it, it should assure true Christians of the genuineness of their faith. 
It's one of the best parts of church membership personally. When my soul feels weighed down, when I struggle with doubt, I can look to others and remember that they have affirmed my salvation. That they are affirming that I believe the same gospel they believe. Friends, you don't need to rely on your own self-testimony. Be encouraged by the testimony of others who have committed themselves to you and have so affirmed that you believe the same gospel they believe. And if you're not a part of a church, let me encourage you to to join, to, to make yourself a part of one so that you can have this same assurance. And so Paul writes to encourage this little church in a little town that they have the true gospel. And he does that by greeting them as gospel people, but he also does that through giving God thanks for the gospel fruit in their lives. Let's look at the second point, gospel fruit. Look at verse 3. Paul writes, we, I think he's referring to him and Timothy, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. I think here we're even seeing Paul's purpose become a little bit more clear. He tells them that we always thank God. Not sometimes, not when it feels appropriate. No, continually. Every time we pray for you, we give thanks to God for you. That can be a very reassuring thing. Paul's thanksgiving is directed to God. God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You might say, well, Paul, didn't you just say we're saying Christ above all? Here, Paul is, is, is referring to Jesus as, as one, who is the, one who has a father, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, we are. We, we cannot separate Jesus from his relationship with the father. Though Jesus is fully God, as Paul will make abundantly clear, we know Jesus is one person of the Godhead, that he is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And so to know Jesus fully, if we, if we want to be filled with the knowledge of Jesus, we must understand God as Father, God as Son, and God as Holy Spirit. So Paul gives thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, every time they pray for them, continually giving thanks. And, and what is he giving thanks for? Well, look at verse 4. He's heard of three things. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul says, we give thanks because we've seen of your faith in Christ, your love for the saints, both being grounded in the hope that's rooted in heaven. Paul hasn't seen this personally. No, he's heard. He's heard from Epaphras, probably, coming and reporting of the good work that's happening there in Colossae. And, and Paul's language here is common, this language of faith, love, and hope. We, we see similar language in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 and 3, where Paul writes to encourage those Christians. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Okay, you, you should see similarities there. It's the same, same, very similar greeting. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. In our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul uses this three, these three words, he does so as a way of summarizing the marks of a genuine Christian. According to Paul, the presence of these three virtues are, are some of the clearest fruit that the gospel has taken hold in our life. 
Like you can tell a flower is growing when the, the, the flower begins to bloom. Paul says, I can tell. The gospel has taken root as I see these three things. The first is faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. I want to highlight there, who, what is the object of their faith? It is Jesus. So why is this faith evidence of, of, their, of the gospel in their lives? Not because they are believing in something, but because they are believing in Jesus Christ. The object of their faith is Jesus. Friends, you cannot have true salvific faith if the object of your faith is not Jesus Christ. We do not worship the same God as those in the Muslim faith or as Buddhist or the many other worldly world religions. No, the defining mark of authentic Christian faith is the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. He's worthy of our faith. Paul will go on to say in, in, in Colossians 1 that, that Jesus is the Lord of creation and new creation. He is the Lord of the church, reconciling all things through his blood. He is worthy of our faith, the only one worthy of our faith. And the Colossians have received Jesus as supreme treasure and savior of their souls. They have rested fully on him. It's more than mere mental assent to certain truths about who Jesus is. No, they, they have rested and received Jesus in the gospel. Christ Jesus was all to them. It was in Christ alone that their hope was found. I wonder, is Christ Jesus the object of your faith? That's not all. These people not only believed in Christ Jesus, they loved all the saints. That's one defining virtue. One defining fruit of the gospel in our lives is not just faith in Christ Jesus, but it is love for all the saints. This is not new to Paul. Jesus taught this in John 13, 35, where he says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love for other saints, other gospel people, is a defining mark that the gospel has taken root in your life. And it's that because it was a defining mark of our Savior. Paul in Ephesians 5.2 writes this, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Our love... When we love all the saints is motivated as we come to understand Christ's love for us. That he gave himself up for us on the cross. That he rose again so that we can now walk in love. And for the Colossians, this, this, this characteristic must have been great in them because Paul mentions it twice, not just once. He says it here in verse 4 of the love that you have for all the saints. But he'll mention it again in verse 8. That Epaphras has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Well, this love was not just for those who were like them or, or those who were in their tight circle. No, this was for all the saints. They, they didn't just love those who looked like them or who enjoyed the same thing as they enjoyed, who thought like them or who came from the, the same cultural background as, as them. No, there's something unique and, and supernatural happening here in the love of the Colossians. That's why Paul attributes it 
attributes their love to the Spirit. In verse 8, the Colossians have been indwelt by the Spirit, and as because of that, they are now pouring out in love for all the saints. Well, friends, consider your own love today. Is there a person in this church who you find it hard to love? Let me encourage you with two things. If you're dealing with that very thing, that you're finding someone hard to love in this church, first, pray. Pray for that person. Do it daily. Give God thanks for them. Pray that the Lord would soften your heart towards them. This is a work of his spirit. It is a supernatural thing. It's not something you and I can do on our own. No, pray that the Lord would soften your heart. But second, make it a point to talk often to them. Find them after the service or before the service. Give them a call during the week. Send them a card letting them know you're praying for them. Be diligent to to talk often and allow that to stir up your love and, and to cause you to do more acts of love. So the Colossians were known for their faith in Christ Jesus and for their love of all the saints. Yet, yet Paul will say these two, these two things would not have been true if it had not been for their hope that is laid up in heaven. Look at verse 5. He uses the word there because of the hope. Right? We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because your hope is laid up in heaven. I love how the NIV puts it. He says the faith, it says the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up from you for, for you in heaven. Our faith and love spring up. Like jumping off of a trampoline, we, we are launched into love and faith when we put our hope in heaven. The hope that Paul speaks here is is not necessarily an active verb of hope, but he uses hope much like we read in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4 this morning, which calls our hope an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. See, friends, in Christ we have the inheritance of eternal life with him and the totality of blessings that come with that. But for now, that hope is in heaven. And we await the fullness of it. See, as Christians, we live as people who who find not the fullness of our reality here in this world. No, we wait the full reality of our new kingdom when Christ returns. What we have now is merely foretaste. When we sing together, as we've done this morning, this is a mere foretaste of what singing will be like in heaven. When we fellowship with other Christians, this is merely a foretaste of the perfect fellowship we will have in heaven. Our hope is laid up there, an inheritance. And as we said, our hope there, our faith in Christ Jesus, and love for all the saints will spring forth. Well, what Paul's doing here is he's encouraging these Colossian believers because he's heard of the presence of these three things. And he's saying these virtues are evidence that you have the authentic and true gospel. And church, it's been an encouragement to me to hear and see of your faith in Christ Jesus in the midst of suffering. So many of you have suffered, but the object of your faith has not changed. It's remained Christ Jesus. 
I was struck by that as I talked with Ken and Mary this week, who have been through so much suffering yet have endured. They've not taken their eyes off of Christ because they know their hope is in the future when God will make all things right. It's been an encouragement to receive and and hear of your love. We heard last week of of how Diane is seeking to love our sister Vi. She did not know her, but has spent time visiting her and and, and intends to do so more and more. Friends, that is love for all the saints. So many of you have loved all the saints. So friends, let me encourage you, rest assured in the true gospel as it bears good fruit among your lives today. But our insurance is found not only as we bear good fruit, but as we remember that the gospel is truth. So that's what we see in the second half of verse 5, gospel, truth. Paul's really just continuing his argument. Where where did the the Colossians learn of the hope that they have? That's, That's the cause of springing forth into love and faith. Well, they've heard it in the only place you can hear it. In the word of the truth, the gospel. Paul wants the church in Colossae to know that the message they they heard before Paul even wrote this letter, the message from Epaphras was the, the true message. That the false teaching they are now dealing with, that's not the truth. The gospel is truth. And friends, this is a a wonderfully grand claim. The gospel is truth, absolute and final. Not just true for you or true for me. No, it is the truth. Look at the the absolute definite article that Paul uses there in verse 5. In the word of the truth. To know the message of the gospel is to know absolute truth. One commentator said it this way, could simpler words make a grander claim? The gospel of Christ is nothing less than the truth beyond human invention and imagination. The gospel of Christ is nothing less than the truth. It's not something humans invented or imagined in their minds. No, it is the truth. The gospel is, as the famous quote goes, The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We cannot add or subtract to this message. It is the absolute and final truth. It is the truth. Say it again and again and again. But what is this message that is the truth? Well, let's consider what what Paul told uh, in in what Paul preached in Ephesus, where Epaphras had heard the gospel. In Acts 20, 20 through 21, Paul's about to leave Ephesus and he's reminding the elders of the church what he has proclaimed. He says this, starting in verse 20, you yourselves know how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul proclaimed publicly, privately, Again and again, that God, who is holy and good, created the world good. But it did not stay that way. Sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. And now each one of us are born sinners, deserving the the full wrath of God, separated from our good and holy God. We need reconciliation. 
right? Repentance toward God. We need to be reconciled because the wages of sin is death. We need a sacrifice. That sacrifice cannot be of our own blood or or the blood of bulls and goats because that cannot take away sin. No, he sent Jesus, God the Son, who took on the fullness of flesh. In him, the, the fullness of God dwelt bodily. The invisible God now made known to us. This Jesus lived and breathed in our world. He lived a perfect life, never sinning. Yet he went to the cross willingly, where he bore the wrath for our sins. But Jesus did not stay dead. He arose from the dead, so that all who trust in him are rescued from sin and given new life. And so the, the call is what Paul, what Paul said there in Acts 20. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin and know and trust in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the call of the truth today. This is the truth, the, the only truth. Trust in Jesus. Repent of your sin. Look nowhere else. If you've never believed this truth, you've never believed this gospel, let me encourage you to consider that and and to come talk to me or or someone who's sitting next to you or who invited you to talk about what is the truth, this good news, the grace of God in truth. And this is the message that the Colossians had heard before. This is what had come to them. And therefore, by reminding the Colossians that this message is truth, he reassures them that they have the full and complete gospel. You don't need to look other places. Friends, the gospel we have just recounted is the only truth. You don't need to look for other places for salvation. This is the message. So be reassured that you have the true gospel and rest in that message today. The gospel message that the Colossians have heard is not only the truth, but it is powerful truth. See, when God speaks, he acts. And so Paul will say, when we see the power of the gospel, we are encouraged to rest assured in that gospel. Look at verse 6, gospel power. Gospel power. The apostle continues to recount how the gospel has come to the Colossians. But now the emphasis begins to change. Not only is this message truth, right? That's what we see in verse 5. But now this message, which has come to you in verse 6, as indeed in the whole whole world, the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing as, as the gospel also does among you since the day you heard the gospel and understood the grace of God in truth. So here the gospel has come not to them, but is coming to the whole world. And in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. So the power of the gospel is seen in a couple ways. It's seen first in the breadth of the message. The message of the gospel is universal. It is not a local message for local people. No, it is a global message for a global people. It's not only for those in the Lycus Valley There, around Colossae, no, the gospel has spread throughout the whole world, Paul says. And it is bearing fruit and increasing even today. And so while some will try to attack this message in Colossae, Paul will say, don't give in. You've placed your faith in in a global message, a message that is spreading across the whole world. But not only is it breath, is it spreading out in the whole world, No, it is prospering. The gospel is bearing fruit and increasing everywhere it goes. 
It's bearing fruit among the people of Colossae, but it's also bearing fruit in Rome, in Jerusalem, in Laodicea, and around the world. Friends, wherever the gospel is preached, it prospers. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, as Paul will say in Romans 1.16, where he writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek also. The Colossians had no reason to be ashamed of the gospel. They had no reason to add or look for something to make the gospel feel more sufficient. No, the gospel is powerful and sufficient. But I wonder if you sit here today and you say, I I know that to be true, but it's hard to see that. It's hard to see the gospel's power. Because when I look around and what I see is people struggling with sin, suffering with sickness, I don't see many people coming to Jesus in faith. And we can wonder, is the gospel sufficient? Do we need to add something else? Is it powerful? But friends, let me encourage you, we we can't always see it. But God's word has authoritatively told us the gospel is always bearing fruit and increasing. Like an oak tree that can take hundreds of years to grow but is always growing and increasing under the soil. So the gospel may not be seen in how it's bearing fruit and increasing, but it is, even when we cannot see it. And so that's why we need to be reminded of not just what's right around us, but what's going on in the whole world, as Paul does. This is what we did during our members meeting last week. We heard of of Trinity Church in Bedford, a a two-month-old church that's, that's already seeing the fruit of the gospel. People who have never heard the gospel are hearing the gospel, are wanting to know more about the gospel. That's amazing. We heard from Gunnar in Iceland at Lofstofen Baptist Church, where where the gospel work has been going on since, since before 2005. And yet just now are they beginning to see real, true fruit, like the, the... They're seeing Icelandic people and Ukrainian refugees and Iranian refugees hear the gospel and be saved. Friends, the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing with young and old, rich and poor, those at home and those who are refugees. It's increasing with English speakers and with Farsi speakers, with northerners and southerners. Church, don't lose heart. You may not see it, but the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is sufficient and it is bearing fruit and increasing right now. But it it bears fruit and increases, not just as it comes to new places. No, what does Paul say? Not only is it indeed in the whole world, but as it also does among you. See, the gospel's power, friends, is not cut off once someone believes it, as if we believe it and we no longer need it. No, the gospel's power is continuing to transform you today. You need, Christian, the message of the good news just as much as the the Afghan refugee that you see at the store. See, the gospel bears fruit as we grow in our faith in Christ Jesus. The gospel bears fruit as our love for all the saints increases day by day. The gospel bears fruit as our hope in heaven becomes more firmly fixed. Is there a sin you're struggling to kill? Preach the gospel to yourself. Confess it to others so that they might preach the gospel to you. You see someone suffering in the church? 
Preach the gospel to them. Tell them of the good news that, that in sickness and distress, nothing can separate them from the love of Christ Jesus. Church, you don't need to look to other places for transformative power that can cause us to grow. We need to look to the gospel because it is the power of God. And the gospel's power is found in the proclamation of a message. I don't, don't know if you've caught it, but as we've read through the passage, Paul, Paul repeats the, this phrase, you have heard before. In verse 6, he says it again, just as you heard it and understood it, just as you learned it. See, if we, if we want people to, to know the power of God, we, they must hear a message. Beware, friends, of falling for the familiar phrase. Preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. To live a holy life, but to never proclaim the gospel, is to deprive your unbelieving friends and family from the power of the gospel. Friends, we were intended to be conduits of the power of the gospel, not cul-de-sacs of the gospel's power. And so take hope, no matter how awkward, how uncomfortable you are in proclaiming this message, the, the power is not in how we proclaim, but in what we proclaim. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Where was the power found? It wasn't in Paul's creative outlines. It wasn't in his smooth speech. It was in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Brothers and sisters, go in fear and weakness, not with plausible words of wisdom, but with the spirit and with the power of God in the gospel. The gospel's power is not found in how well you can talk about it. It's found in who you proclaim. And friends, know that God's, the gospel power that God's power is in the gospel. The gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. But we've come to know that not just in theory, right? not just some knowledge, head knowledge. We've come to experience that in practice. We've rest confident in the gospel's power because there was a messenger who brought us the gospel. Just as Epaphras brought the gospel to Colossae, which brings us to our final point, gospel messenger. Here in verses 7 and 8, Paul continues to, to tell them of how they've learned of this truth. Right? They, they, they have learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So as Paul begins to conclude this section of gratitude... He highlights the, the faithfulness of the one who has brought them the gospel, Epaphras. Paul says the Colossians can trust they have the true gospel because they had a faithful messenger of the gospel. And he calls the Colossians to trust Epaphras for, for three reasons. First, Epaphras taught them faithfully the gospel. Right? He says, you, 
You have heard the truth just as you learned it from Epaphras. Epaphras was a faithful teacher. Right? He's, he's not casting doubt on Epaphras. No, he's casting confidence. You, you learned it from Epaphras. You learned the true gospel. But not only that, not only have they learned the true gospel, but, but Epaphras is a faithful minister, a fellow servant of Paul. So Paul and Timothy speak highly of Epaphras. He is a, a faithful servant to them. Right? He, they have been benefited from his ministry. And finally, they, they, they tell us that Epaphras has spoke highly of the church. There in verse 8. That Epaphras has made known to us your love in the spirit. That Epaphras has, has shown himself to be a faithful messenger of the gospel because he loves and speaks highly of the people who he brought the gospel to. Therefore, if the Colossians can trust Epaphras, the messenger, they can have greater assurance that they have the true message of the gospel. The false teachers were probably trying to cause doubt, but Paul wants them to know in every way Epaphras has been a faithful minister, a faithful messenger. Well, brothers and sisters, I wonder, do you trust those who bring you the gospel? We don't know whether Epaphras remained as an elder there at the church, but, but in some way he was the one who, who brought that church the gospel. Well, friends, let me encourage you to welcome those who, who bring the gospel to you week after week. To welcome the instruction of our elders, for they are faithful messengers. This is what we've promised to do in our membership covenant. We, we promise that we will welcome and test instruction from the scriptures by the elders of the church, which accords with the confession of faith, seeking to grow toward unity in the truth of the gospel. We promise to be committed to having an attitude of welcoming and re receiving the gospel from the elders of this body. The, the gospel you hear from them is the true gospel. They are beloved fellow servants. I know as I work alongside of them that, that, that they often speak highly of you. That in every way you can trust that they are faithful messengers. You can trust those who bring you the gospel today. Friends, Satan will try to cast doubt, not just on the message itself, which is what he was doing, what Paul was dealing with earlier, but Satan will also try to cast doubt on the messenger. But you can trust those who bring you the gospel. Well, the Apostle Paul wanted to encourage this young Colossian church to reassure them that they have the true message. And so, brothers and sisters, when, when you and I, when we need assurance, we don't look to other messages. Messages that tell us to, to look within ourselves. Messages that tell us to do this or that, 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 that you are all you need. No, when we need assurance, we look to the only message that can save. The message that unites a people. That bears fruit of faith, love, and hope. The message that is the truth, that has universal power. Brothers and sisters, when you need assurance, look to the gospel. Look to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look to him who is at the center of this message of good news. Rest in Jesus who unites people by his blood. Rest in Jesus who is the vine who causes his branches to bear fruit. Rest in Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. 
Rest in Jesus, whose power is seen as he was raised from the dead and now gives new life to dead hearts. Rest in Jesus, who is the trustworthy and authoritative messenger of this message. Even as we are about to partake together in the Lord's Supper, let me encourage you to rest in Jesus, to rest assured in the true gospel, as it is bearing gospel fruit among you and around the world. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the fruit you are bearing in this church. The fruit of faith, of love, of hope. Father, we pray that you would grant us assurance even this very afternoon in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that that we would not look to other sources, but that we would look only to the gospel for the assurance that you promise your people. Father, we pray that we would look to other gospel people, that we would look for the gospel fruit that you promise, that we would remember your gospel is truth. Father, that we would remember your gospel has power, and that we would trust those whom you have given to us to bring us the gospel. As we see all of those things, that you would fill us with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we might be assured in the true gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.